uh, begin it tonight by looking at a promise. Um, we'll go to an easy one, but again, just to review what uh, we've been doing over and over again, um, looking at this uh, faith rest drill by in, in three parts, um, is that to grab hold of, to remind, or uh, somehow remember a, a section or a text of Scripture. And what I've been trying to do is just go to the, same, the classic locations in Scripture where there are promises. And, and just to become aware and uh, maybe dig them deeper into our memories. Uh, and then illustrate the second part of that drill, which is to circulate and think on and focus upon that promise and then to trust it. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 is another one of the classic promises in scripture that's uh, very useful and it's useful because the rationale involved in this particular promise is so clear, uh, so direct, directly related to God's character that it, it's, um, I found it over the years very useful. Um, Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church, and so on. <clears throat> and the first part of that is, is basically a promise that we can utilize in our daily lives. Now to him who is able. And it just goes back to what we've uh, gone over time and again, and that is this is the essence of God that God is sovereign, God is righteous, God is just, the holiness of God. God is love, God is omniscient, omnipotent, immutable, eternal, and whatever other attributes we want to attribute to him. But this, this promise focuses on his omnipotence. There's another omnipresence here. Uh, this one looks at as clearly as omnipotence. It says he is able to do, and then Paul qualifies it. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly, which is a, a powerful adverb. And then it says, beyond all that we ask or think. And the implication there is that it goes to his, again, his omniscience. You'll notice how often in Scripture, in these promises from Isaiah to Paul, those two attributes keep coming up. God is powerful. Uh, his power is beyond comprehension. And here again, you see that incomprehensibility of God. He, his knowledge is far above all that we can ask or think. And so, and we'll get into the, later into the church age, we'll get into the power that works within us. But right now, we're just looking at the bare outlines of that promise. The rationale of that promise is God's character that underlies it. And then we understand what is the alternative to this? What is the opposite of this? If this were not true, if God did not exist, then there is no personal meaning, there's no personal power in the universe. It's just basically the laws of physics and chemistry or chance, one or the other. So then the promise becomes a platform on which we can rest our faith and, and trust. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And if he is able to do that above all that we ask, that means that he is able to do all things beyond what we can even pray for. 
Okay, let's have a word of prayer and we'll get into the lesson tonight. Father, we thank You tonight for Your grace, that You renew it each day, and that You provide for our daily bread. And we know that beyond all that, You have sought to redeem us. You have created a perfect plan of salvation, excluded all human merit from that plan of salvation and have graciously called us to Yourself through it. We thank You now in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we're going to move temporarily into Appendix A that we've passed out. And um, tonight and next week, I hope I can get through this, maybe three weeks. It'll probably take about three weeks to get through this appendix. But... um, I want to deal with this problem because when we get into what we're getting into uh, on the events that we're going to deal with this year, of course the first one we have dealt with is the session of the Lord Jesus Christ and even there we've got into a problem in that the issue between Reformed and Dispensational Theology, there's a diver- it begins to split right here because it's how we handle the session of Christ. One group handles it one way, one group handles it another way. Uh, not terribly serious difference, but then we come to the next event we're going to deal with is Pentecost, and uh, then there's some more differences about what happened at Pentecost, about the implications for whether the church was new on the day of Pentecost or whether it existed before then. Uh, and then we're going to go into and this is where it really gets uh, heavy, and that is when, is when the church separates from the nation Israel in the book of Acts. And um, I'll show you how that develops. But the two become two distinct entities. And the question is, how do you deal with that, that split? And then we go on further, uh, to we go into the issue of the church history, and what God is doing, we're not going to deal with all church history. We're going to show simply that the Holy Spirit brings the church to maturity through a sequence and a doctrinal development. And then finally, the future of the church and the rapture. And then we differ there. So all these events in this chain that we're going to look at um, are seen differently by these two perspectives. And in our evangelical circles, we run into both of these. So it behooves us at least to know what they're all about and what the differences are. So tonight, um, we're going to start by looking at Reformed theology. And I want to go back a moment in church history for this. Uh, If we diagram, we'll diagram this later, but in more detail. But if we diagram uh, the role of the Holy Spirit in building the church and we will start it at the day of Pentecost because that's where from a dispensational perspective the church began was no church in the Old Testament then at this point we have certain things happen we have the New Testament canon finished and when that New Testament canon was finished that at that point things began to happen to spiritual gifts because the church was gifted. So the question right away, and see, every one of these issues, we, we deal with this difference. 
right here, when the canon of the New Testament was complete, we have the simultaneous diminishing of certain gifts given uh, in the church. Then in this period, for the first two or three centuries, the church struggles along against the Roman Empire. And the central concern and the doctrine that was fought over against all the heretics of the faith was, who is Jesus Christ? So we have Christology. And we studied that two or three years ago in Thursday Night Class, remember. You can summarize the proper orthodox doctrine of Jesus Christ by saying He is undiminished deity, He is true humanity, united in one person forever without confusion. Now, that only took a sentence. But that took 350 years of intense discussion and study of the Scriptures before the church got that smoothly worded statement. And if you want to see the evidence, you remember the evidence, you can go into a hymn book, you can look in the back, look at the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, and if you can find a book, a good book, I brought some of these tonight, so if you ever happen to be in a Christian bookstore, I don't know whether you can get them anymore, maybe you can in, in the CBD or something, or a used bookstore. But one of the great little, if, if you're interested in the details, one of the great uh, books is Creeds of Christendom by Philip Schaff. It's a three-volume set. Thankfully, you don't go bankrupt when you buy it in paperback. But this is a complete set of all the creeds that the Christian church has ever put forward in history. Not all of them, maybe, but 99% of them. And it's a great discussion for those. And I'll make my point using some of these uh, later. But the first basic creeds were all struggling to protect the nature of Christ against heresy, because if you do not get straight in your thinking about who Jesus Christ is, all the rest of it is just a religious hot air. The issue is, who is this person, Jesus Christ? Because until that truth is clear, we cannot be clear on the gospel. We cannot be clear on salvation. We cannot be clear as to who, what Christ, who Christ is in our life and what is eternity all about in light of that. So, that was the debate here for the first three centuries. Now, simultaneous with that, we have accretions develop. And God always uh, moves forward after we've slopped around. I mean, you know, review your own Christian life. You know how it is. Um, the best lesson you ever learn is when you get knocked flat in your butt. And then when you pick yourself up and then you learn, you really learn then. And God has to get our attention that way by treating us this way sometimes. Not that he doesn't care for us, but sometimes that's the way we learn, learn the lesson thoroughly. Well, the church began to pick up a lot of philosophy, began to pick up a lot of Greek ways of thinking. And the theology became encrusted. Plus, when Rome fell, uh, the church actually became kind of a replacement for the Roman Empire. I mean, it was an orderly society. Uh, power gravitated to it. Uh, the early bishops of Rome, who later became the popes, uh, bargained with the Visigoths and the Vandals and everybody else that came down the Italian peninsula and said, yeah, you can go loot Rome, but don't burn it, please. And they made a few deals, and that elevated the political stature. And so, basically, the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church became very powerful here. This is the classic rise of that period of time. 
you go down through until you get around to the 14 to 1500. The precursor to the Protestant Reformation, believe it or not, was a health problem. During the time, just prior to the Protestant Reformation, there was the, the plagues hit Europe. Village after, I mean, we can't even conceive of this other than by reading perhaps about the flu epidemic in 1917 when American soldiers came back from seeing buddies in the trenches of Europe piled high and they went to New York City, Chicago, Baltimore and other cities and the corpses were piled higher than they were in the trenches of Europe. That's how many people died in the flu epidemic in 1917. So these epidemics can be critical. Well an epidemic hit Europe and something happened that God used that epidemic to break open a lot of areas. When the epidemic came in, many of the leaders of the people fled. And most of the leaders who fled, think about it now, in medieval Europe, who were the leaders that fled the villages when everybody else got sick? Well, it would be the princes, it would be the wealthy people who could flee. And lo and behold, in many cases, it was the priests who fled the villages. Well, this created a problem because now, who in the villages is going to minister to people and the deacons would be left there, no Bible, nothing. And there came out of that movement, people said, we've got to have the Bible. I mean, we, you know, we don't have the priest here, we don't, can't, nobody's explaining it to us. And so there was a little bit of hunger here and there and it started with Huss and Wycliffe and these other guys. There was just a groundswell to get into the scriptures. And then along came a guy by the name of Martin Luther. He was also later the, the John Calvin. Luther in Germany, Calvin in France and Switzerland. And these guys were just amazing, amazingly smart, well-placed believers. Uh, didn't, weren't believers until uh, later in their lives, when they became young men. They weren't believers from childhood. But Martin Luther sought how to be right with God. And people who is critics, if you read the criticisms of Martin Luther, you always hear it say, oh, this guy was mentally imbalanced and he was grotesque in the way he thought about himself and always he had a big guilt complex and this and that. He was a man who was driven to solve the problem of how can I be just before God? He had a good concept because Catholicism during this period did preserve a powerful view of God. The weakness was, after you had the powerful view, an awesome view of God, what do you do? Because you feel condemned. You feel like, I never can be acceptable to this kind of a God. So, Martin Luther sought that, and the long story goes, you can read it about it later. Uh, he uh, found the answer in the book of Romans. And uh, that was one of the big breakthroughs of the doctrine of justification by faith. Let's turn to Romans chapter 5 and you'll see this. Uh, we read it, you know, in our nice little Bibles like, oh, well, I've read that in Sunday school and so on. But stop and think of what it must have been like uh, when in Luther's day he was, uh, he was teaching Romans and he ran across this truth for the first time in his life. For the first time in this man's life seeking how he could be right with God, knowing as a priest that he had sin after sin after sin, knowing his own heart, um, 
realizing the church at that point was very corrupt, that it wasn't answering the question. And so he comes to Romans chapter 5. And now I'm not saying that he came literally to this verse. There's plenty of verses in here, but I'm showing you just the doctrine. In chapter 5, verse 1, we read, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that. Do you notice what the tense is in the verb? What's the, first of all, let's look through the, the sentence as a sentence. And let's do something they don't teach you to do anymore in school. Too busy doing pluralism or something. Here's the subject. Remember diagramming sentences, subject and verb. Okay. Main verb of the sentence. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Main verb, we have peace. Okay, have. We have. Is it had? Or is it future tense? No, it's present tense. We have peace with God. So, we observe from the text, present tense of the main verb. Object is peace, but is qualified by an antecedent clause that reads, having been justified by faith. Having been justified by faith. So, prior to this subject, prior to this we have an antecedent clause, and what tense is the antecedent clause? Past? present or future it's past it's past so prior to the present tense we have a past and it is we are justified okay so what does that mean now it means that he is justified and then he has peace so in the logic of the sentence how do you get to peace you have to first be justified before God. Now let's take this one step further. Let's follow me in the logic. If justification is a lifelong process, when would you have peace with God? It would be when you die, if it was a lifelong process because clearly we have justification prior to having the peace. So, the point is that Luther discovered that you can, know, you can have justified as a past tense. You can be justified over, complete, and begin to walk by faith. Now, for the first time, he in his life felt acceptable to God and clean. Why? because he realized that this is a past action. And out of this, both Luther and Calvin did something. They had the big breakthrough. Now, I want you to watch this breakthrough because it got distorted immediately in the Protestant Reformation. And today, it's still plaguing us in our evangelical circles. Both of these guys, both of them, now they disagreed on a lot, but both of them were unified in defining, defining faith as assurance. Okay? Faith 
is the same thing as assurance. Those are not two different things. Now, why do you suppose they, they, they were so insistent on that? Think of just verse, chapter 5, verse 1. In order to have peace, what do you have to have? You have to have the assurance that you're okay with God. So that's the point that he's saying. That's where the faith and the trust come in. So faith is defined by both of these guys as assurance. That's not debated. Scholars know that. So far, I haven't said anything that you can't verify in a church history book. But here's what happened. Luther and Calvin did their thing, and immediately, right after that, the Catholic Church decided they're going to stop this business. And so the Pope created a group called the Jesuits. The Jesuits' job were to be sort of the shock troops of Roman Catholicism to destroy Protestantism. That's the Jesuits' task. That was, that's what they were founded for. They were brilliant men, they were well-trained, and they went for the juggler. What was the juggler you suppose they went for? If you were a Jesuit, how would you attack Luther and Calvin? Here these guys had torn up Europe with the idea that people could be justified by faith and have peace now, not in the future, not to wait to the future, but they got peace right now. So the juggler that the Jesuits attacked was that if you hold to faith is assurance, that creates licentious living. You give Christians the idea that they are assured that their justification is finished and they're going to go out and raise hell. So you just open the door to people abusing grace. And that was the assault of Rome. So now the Protestants had to come back and answer that. Now, here's where things get greasy. The second and third generation Protestant theologians answered the Roman Catholics on this point of controversy by refining a definition of faith. They backed up, back from what Luther and Calvin originally said, and they said, well, we've got to figure out how a person can think they're a Christian and they tube out and see, we, we can't let this, this person who professes to have become a Christian tubes out and see, that becomes embarrassing because the Roman Catholic Jesuits are saying, see, see what I tell you. You Protestants get this assurance business and, and everybody just goes out and parties. That's what you've created here. You've created Pandora's box by doing this doctrine of justification by faith. Well, the Protestants had to defend that, so when they have somebody that professes to be a Christian, craters, oh, he wasn't of the elect. He never was a believer. But it was a clever move, because then they could say that he was never justified. And they could nullify the counterattack of Rome. This was a counter to the counterattack. Or it's the counterattack. Roman attacked, or you could say, well, you could say the Protestant attacked, Romans, Roman Catholicism counterattack. This was the counter to the counterattack. And out of this came a trend. Now, this is what I want to get at tonight. This is not saying that everybody believed this, that everybody was monolithic. The thing you want to just grab and take away is 
by the resistless force of logic, if you start somewhere, you usually wind up over here. Given a certain set of premises, you usually wind up... Not everybody does that because not everybody is consistent. Not all of us are totally consistent, but there's a trend. And that's all I'm saying. There's a trend here. Now, do you suppose that a man original... Go back to Martin Luther a moment. Do you imagine that a man who went through the agony of Martin Luther in seeking to be justified before God, when he discovered that he could be clean and justified before God, do you suppose he took grace lightly? Not at all. Now think why Martin Luther would not have taken grace lightly. Because he had a heavy what? He had a heavy theology of who God was. There wasn't any danger if the theology is heavy enough to support this definition of faith. But you take somebody in California or something uh, and uh, tell them that they're justified by faith and they don't have a clue about the God of the creation or the God of the scriptures. Oh, yeah, I went for it in a meeting, raised my hand and did all the rest of it. And so faith is assurance, so fine, fine, I'll go out and, you know, keep partying. See around. Well, obviously, you've got a problem here. Now, what is the problem, though? What is the problem? Let's look at this. What these guys thought was the problem was that the elect, those people who God foresees, God who decrees that are going to become his own people forever, the problem is that those elect become manifest in history. A person can go through the religious motions and never have been the, of the elect and flake out. But the real elect people will never flake out. And that's how you prove that you are of the elect. Now, what do you suppose happened as a result of this trend? Up comes a group of people called the Puritans. They're powerful people, and I admire the Puritans. And it's difficult for me tonight because I, I love a lot about Reformed theology. I'm just going to have to disagree when I get over to the dispensational side. But I want you to understand, we're not negating the good stuff these guys did. These guys broke open a door, and we wouldn't be sitting here tonight if it hadn't been for these guys. We have a lot to owe to these reformers. And we have a lot to owe to the Puritans. And nobody ever understands the Puritans because in high school classes around this county and every other county, the first thing and the last thing any student ever hears about the Puritans is, is what's his name's play? Um, Miller's play, The Crucible. Now, apart from marrying Marilyn Monroe, this guy didn't have too much going for him. But he, he started this play called The Crucible. Now, he couldn't even get his play right. You go down to Blockbuster and look at the video. And this is an interesting exercise, how stupid this is. And you look up The Crucible. Pull it out. They have a video of it. And read the jacket on it. I had a laugh. I went in a Blockbuster, pull this thing off, and the jacket is that these nasty Puritans burned witches. And you've probably heard it. Salem, they burned witches. Didn't burn any witches. They drowned them. Completely opposite. And there's a reason for that, theologically. 
But, I mean, it shows you how sloppy these people are. See, they want to take pot shots, and they can't even read their history books and get it straight. Nobody burned witches in Salem. No one. The issue was that things got out of control as a mob situation and so forth, but that's all the Puritans are ever known for. When we forget that they were the ones that introduced the whole idea of law in this country. They are the tough people who started something in America that no place else in the world has ever been able to do. The reason the Constitution exists is because a lot of the heavy Puritan theology, the insistence that these people said, look, we're going to live by the word of God. We've gotten out of the cesspool called Europe. We've come to this country, and we want a country built on the word of God. And they founded Harvard University. You can walk on a Harvard campus today, and you see, they know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Isn't that a joke for Harvard? But the sad thing is, that's what Harvard University was originally for. So anyway, make a long story short, the tr these Puritans were characterized with these big commentaries. You can see them. You can go to a Christian bookstore, you can go to used books and see these enormous things. Owen's commentary on Hebrews, my Lord, it's seven volumes long. So you can go into these things and we call these conversion morphologies meditations on this, this I mean, they're very beneficial for devotional literature. But the emphasis is always trying to see the work of the Holy Spirit in my life to make sure that I am of the elect. Now, it had a very interesting result in history. One of the results of this kind of thinking was the Industrial Revolution. You'll never hear that one either in your church history course. The Industrial Revolution, if you think about it, had to be financed. That's why we're going through the Industrial Revolution today, a new Industrial Revolution of the Internet and all the rest of it. And the issue is financing the dot-coms and everything else and the stock market's going up and down because you can't build new things without money and you've got to have money from somebody who did what? Saved their money. So guess who was saving the money by the millions in Europe prior to the Industrial Revolution? It was a group of people, not the Puritans per se, but the trend, because if you weren't economically prosperous, what did that show? If God promised blessing for those who obey Him, and remember the blessings in Israel were what? Physical and economic. So how would you prove you were elect? By saving your money. And showing that you could be economically prosperous in business. So, it was a powerful trend in Europe. A lot of it was very healthy, but buried in all this was a departure from this, this original idea. And the second thing that happened was that these people, being the very smart people they were, well-educated, the, the way they def defended themselves was they always built a creed. Now, if you look at the notes, page one, we'll, we'll take up some of these themes. first paragraph, I'm pointing out uh, some of the trends, just the general names, okay? This is, not, this is not a course in church history. This is, I'm just pointing some trends out. Lutherans, second sentence, Lutherans held to much of the Romanist liturgy. You can go into a Lutheran church and you'll see the priest and the altar and so on. They held to infant baptism, to an amillennial eschatology, and to a strong view of communion called Constantiation. 
Calvinists, while departing from Lutherans on liturgical aspects and the nature of communion, nevertheless held on to infant baptism and amillennial eschatology. Those Christians, so, so just see two words. See the word Lutheran, you can circle it. See the word Calvinist, circle it. And now the third word that I want you to look at there. Those Christians who insisted upon believers' baptism were less committed to amillennialism, usually known as Anabaptists, were persecuted and excluded politically and socially as too radical for the general Protestant community. They were called, another word for the Anabaptists is, radical reformers. So if you ever hear that in your history books, that's who they are. Now why were they called Anabaptists? Because in, in this time in Europe, what were most people by the time they were five? They had already been baptized. So, these guys came along and said, if you haven't personally believed in Jesus Christ, then that baptism means nothing. So you have to be baptized again. Anna Baptists. That's why they were called that. They were called radicals because they started disassembling Roman Catholicism further than the Lutherans and Calvinists did. Okay. Now if you'd go down to the bottom paragraph of page one. This is just what I said. The, the Protestants were under a lot of fire Intrigue, politics, counsels, and violence followed. We can't imagine today. Well, yes, we can. Could you imagine a, a revival in Iran being nonviolent tonight? No, you couldn't imagine that. Well, that's Europe. That was what was happening. You had one religious group dominating society, suddenly threatened by this upsurgence of what is going on here. And there was violence. So politics was involved, everything. The whole Europe was in convulsion over this issue. Would to God that we'd be in, you know, in violence and convulsion over something that was scriptural. The reformers had neither the time nor the energy to wholly reform Roman Catholic theology. Underline that because that's the key in understanding a lot that went on. We cannot criticize these people. They did what they could do in their generation. They were lucky to survive with their lives, leave alone do anything else. Okay? What they did do was to affirm the primacy of Scripture over the church. Sola Scriptura. Only the Scripture. And out of that belief, affirm the doctrine of justification by faith. I hope maybe to get here next year, if I can, um, uh, Ron Merriman, who um, might... I haven't talked to him yet. So don't talk, tell your father yet, Lord. Um, but Ron has done a very good work. He's specialties in church history, and he's got this neat little thing that he's pulled together, a series of lectures on the history of justification by faith. He goes into this whole thing, and uh, I give you his internet address there. Is that still his internet address, Laura? Um, and um, maybe you can get a copy of it. But it's a wonderful summary. It's, it's non-technical. It covers thousands of pages of church history. So uh, church history books are voluminous. So it's a quick way of bringing yourself up to speed on some of these issues. Okay? You underlined a critical sentence in that page. Remember what I said? We cannot criticize these guys because they did what they could do in their generation. 
Now, here's the downside of what they did. Here's, here's the problem. They were very logical. And we can admire that. But if you'll notice the middle paragraph on page two, I have the title, The Structure Freezes. Now, that's Clough's terminology. I read that in a church history book. But that's my way of expressing what happened here. They defined what they believed, and so they wrote these elaborate creeds. Now, just to give you an idea of how much they believed in creeds, here's volume one of this textbook. Here's one of the outstanding professors of church history. This book is 1,000 pages thick, paperback. Do you know how much of this book is devoted to the Protestant creeds versus the Roman Catholic or before, before Protestantism? 200 pages out of 1,000 is devoted to the ecumenical creeds and the early creeds of Roman Catholicism. All the rest is Protestant creeds. See? These guys wrote a creed every time they had a convention. Brilliant work because they sought to express their faith in a public, reasoned statement. And that was good, because at least it brought, the, brought it out into the open. Public debate was on point 17 of the creed. And you, you had to engage in this. So they did wonderful things. The problem was they didn't have time to go into eschatology issues. They didn't have time to develop details of the Christian walk. They didn't have time to, to think, apart from being constantly attacked by Rome and trying to defend themselves during the 16th and 17th centuries. So the creeds sort of froze where they were. The problem with this is what got frozen in these creeds was an amillennial eschatology. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the term, let me define t three terms. PM, AM, and PN. PM, pre-millennialism. What's that mean? Christ pre comes before the millennium. Amillennialism, there isn't any such thing as a millennialism. All those passage about the millennial kingdom, that refers to the eternal state. Post-millennialism, Jesus Christ is going to come after the church has set up the millennium. You notice, of course, how the church is setting up the millennium all over the continents. And so we have three views of eschatology. Now, Roman Catholicism traditionally was amillennial. The Protestants traditionally were amillennial. When these guys wrote the creeds, they didn't bother to reform Roman Catholic amillennialism. They just froze it, kept going on. So the creeds then had a weakness in that they locked up where the Holy Spirit had brought the church. See, the Holy Spirit had brought the church up to this point in time. So this is Holy Spirit teaching, Holy Spirit teaching, Holy Spirit teaching. Boom, boom. Going to lock it all up. Throw away the key. Got, we've got truth for the rest of the church age now. Not going to learn anything more. And so that's the central concept behind what happened here, I believe, in, in Reformed thinking. Down at the bottom, um, oh, the middle paragraph, there's that paragraph that starts with the structure freezes. Look at the last sentence in that paragraph. 
Three major thrusts were sharply resisted by the Reformed theology as it froze to further Reformation. So what I'm saying here is that the Reformation really got stopped by locking it up in the creeds. And then the next paragraph. Here's point one. You can number the paragraphs as you want. There's three things here you want to observe. Number one, Reformed theology continued the Roman Catholic practice of infant baptism, although modifying its mean. To be fair, they're not saying it believing in baptismal regeneration, although I, I came out of the Episcopalian Church, which borrowed a Calvinist creed, and if you look at the 39 articles, you'll see the article that defines baptism in the Anglican Church, in America, the Episcopal Church, you'll see that it speaks of baptismal regeneration. So, so it really didn't make a clean break. It sort of made a modified break of infant baptism with Catholicism. Soon this practice, however, came under fire. Students of the Swiss reformers Wingley, following Sola Scriptura, noted that only believers were baptized in the New Testament. Since they insisted that people who in Europe at that time had nearly all been baptized as infants should be rebaptized after belief, they were called Anabaptists. Zwingli and his fellow reformers savagely persecuted the Anabaptist practice. It's hard for us to imagine why they did that. I think you'll get insight into why they did it in the next paragraph. Number two. A second trend toward a more consistent application of the authority of Scripture was that the Anabaptist belief that the church cannot be identified with the state in any way, whereas Reformed theology continued the Roman Catholic practice of government sponsorship of one church within a jurisdiction. What was the Protestant church that dominated Germany? Lutheran. What church basically dominated Switzerland? The Reformed churches. What churches dominated Holland? The Reformed churches. So if you took a map of Europe, you wouldn't get multicolors for each country. You tend to get one color for this country, one color for that country, one color for this. Why? Because however went the leaders, over here we have this state. And of course the modern boundaries of Europe were different then. Um, they weren't established yet. But over in this jurisdiction, the big boys would, become, would stay Catholic. Guess what all the little boys did? Stayed Catholic. Over here, the big boys went with Luther. Where'd all the little boys go? With Luther. Over here, the guys went with Zwingli and Calvin. Where'd the little boys go with? Zwingli and Calvin. So you had Europe fracturing up into these groups. The problem was that the church inside one group tended to be dominated by one group. The Lutherans didn't mix with the Calvinists who didn't mix with the Roman Catholics. So you had Europe sort of balkanized in these groups. And by the way, uh, that went on in Eastern Europe very much. still is going on. All right. So government sponsorship of one church within a jurisdiction. Now here's another vocabulary word you might read in your church history. That second sentence. It says, Anabaptists determined to form what they called a free church made up of those who voluntarily were baptized after conversion. The church and the state were two separate institutions with two entirely different requirements for membership. It was out of this belief that passivism developed within Anabaptism. 
because the church member, it was thought, could not simultaneously serve as a state magistrate. And out of Anabaptism, we have the group that in our country was known for its pacifism. What group is that? The Mennonites. So, all of this streak, you begin to see these people aren't just making this up. These are trends of thinking, thinking in certain directions. They weren't... So, the issue wasn't so much that killing was the problem of soldiers killing, although that was a problem, too, for them. The real problem was they couldn't see clearly how can I be a member of the church and carry out the decrees of the state when so often these are in collision. How do I act as an agent of the state while I'm a member of the church? They had a big problem with that. The Calvinists didn't. You know why the Calvinists and the Lutherans didn't? Because they just simply said, we're going to force the state to go with the church. So there won't be a divergence. See, all these questions, we can't dismiss these questions because they plague us today. And that's what one of the neat things about church history. You learn that, gee, you know the questions we're struggling with? The Christians three or four centuries ago were struggling with the same things. Okay, such a separation, however, here's the downer with the Anabaptists. Such a separation often tendered toward a new monasticism of an attempted withdrawal from the world. And what's up the road by 150 miles? The Amish. They are in the Anabaptist tradition. Now you can understand why. Because they sought to pull themselves out of the world system and they locked up their culture, their dress, and everything else the way it was back when they pulled out. So all this, there are there reasons why when you observe and you drive around and you visit different places and you see these things and you see different churches, there's reasons why they're the way they are. And you need history to understand that. However, what happened was that the monasticism that developed wasn't too far removed from the monasticism of the Roman Catholic Church. Both of them were seeking to get out of the world system when Christ said, go into the world and be my witnesses. Now, the last sentence is why the Anabaptists got persecuted so badly. Needless to say, this break... You know where this is going to rise up and bite us right now, right here in America? Homeschooling. I predict that the moms and dads who have taken their kids out of the school system, and, and I'm thankful they did because it's a, I mean, it's, I think it's a step forward, but I'm just saying that that act, the, just the act of taking your kid out of the public school system and deciding you're going to teach him or her in your house, you are going to teach them what you want, you are not going to let some idiot PhD educator who has some atheistic theory, who goes along with the ACLU and won't let the Ten Commandments be in the classroom. And I'm not knocking all public school teachers. We have public school teachers right in this congregation. We pray for them. They're wonderful people. They just fight in a bad system. And so they're in there, and, and we have all these homeschoolers by the thousands. Now, at first, they were tolerated. Ah, won't have to worry about them. But the more people homeschool... What is happening to the money? Let's think about, you know, they say investing, follow the money. 
Here you are in the educational establishment. How is your budget determined? How's the public school budget determined? By the attendees. Numbers of people. Uh-oh. We've got a leak. All the kids are going out. And of all the kids that are going out, most of them are good. So now our best students are leaking. Boom. Everyone that walks out of school, uh-oh, $5,000 out of our budget, $6,000 out of our budget. Take up, multiply that by a couple of thousand in, a, in one area. You see what's happening? Now, I predict that eventually this is going to catch up, and we're going to see some strong opposition to the, public, to the homeschool movement. And it's not it's going to come out, oh, this threatens the unity of the community, and oh, we got, we got, you know, these, they're bigots, and they're teaching the kids all bad things, and we've got to correct them, you know. We know so much more about educating them than they do. Of course, if you look at the scores of SATs, you see who wins. But the point is that the pressure is going to come on. But the, the argument is just what this one is. It's going to be viewed that the spin doctors are going to say, this is a split in the unity of our community. It's a violation of pluralism and so forth. It's a rise of parents teaching bigotry to their children, blah, blah. But it can break out. Now, the quote that I have on page three is by one of the great church historians, Kenneth Scott Latterett. And I just put it in there to review what I just told you, just so you know that I made all this up and I had nothing to do with my word processor or something. All right, we've done two things. One, we've said the Anabaptists versus the rest of the Reformers had a problem with infant baptism. Number two, the Anabaptists were free church, the Reformers were state church. Big differences here. Now on page four, bottom on page three actually it starts, here's number three. In addition to continuing the Roman Catholic practices of infant baptism and state sponsorship, Reformed theology also perpetrated or perpetuated Roman Catholic amillennial eschatology included in this eschatological view. Now watch this. I'm going to follow me as I read through that first paragraph on page four. Because this will put other things in place for you. So you can catch things, what, what's going to happen as we go on later, uh, in later weeks this year, and go through the, the, whole, the church and the Christian life and all the rest of it. Included in this eschatological view, and by the way, um, don't be embarrassed or feel like eschatology is, uh, is just a peripheral thing. It's a very important thing. What was the strongest political mo movement in the 20th century? What was it that had us so scared we were on missile alert for all my young life? The Cold War. Communism. Did communism have an eschatology? You bet it did. That was where it collided with capitalist West. Communism, what was its eschatology? The eschatology was that we are going to bring in, they call it the dictatorship of the proletariat and so forth, but really it was their version of the millennial kingdom. We're going to bring it in by armed revolution. We're going to overthrow everybody except the, 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 our guys. And they're going to be in charge. So that was communism. Communism had an eschatology. 
How could 16 and 17 year old uh, soldiers in the North Vietnamese Army stand up, get captured, and when the U.S. Army captured these guys and ran them through uh, tests to find out the depth to which the communist propaganda had penetrated their heart, they discovered that the North Vietnamese had one of the finest training programs ideologically they'd ever seen. These kids weren't just memorizing communism. These kids knew how to think in communist terms. And so we would go in there and carpet bomb with B-52s. And when B-52s dropped 500, 800,000 pound bombs, the explosive force is enough to lift you up. And if you're too close to the blast, you won't kill you immediately. It just smashes every organ in your insides because of the shock wave coming off the bomb. And they kept up, and they kept up, and they kept coming, and they kept coming. Why? Because they believed they had an eschatology. And that was one of our weaknesses, because we had so diminished the Christian faith, we had nothing to counter. Who was the guy in Europe that faced the communists down, almost single-handedly? The guy that's the Pope, Pope John. What did he do in Poland? He stood up to the communists. Communists couldn't get their hands to totally control Poland because Catholics had at least an eschatology. We would disagree with the details, but they had an eschatology different from the communists. And so it was a total collision. It wasn't a political program here. It was belief about what? What is eschatology? Belief about our future. See, you're motivated today by what, what you think your future is going to be like, right? And that's what eschatology is. So if you have a screwed up eschatology, you've screwed up your hope, your vision for who you are and where you are going. So don't dismiss eschatology. It's very important. All right, let's watch what happened in the Reformation. Included in this eschatological view was the idea of replacement theology. You will see that again and again. Whereby the church replaces Israel in God's plan. So when you go from the Old Testament to the New, the church replaces Israel. Now watch what that does. The idea of allegorical interpretation of biblical texts, especially the prophetic texts. Because obviously if the church replaces Israel... Is the church made up of physical Jews? No. Well, if the promises in the Old Testament are to physical Jews, how do I get those promises to move over here and come down in the church? Got to allegorize them, right? Can't literally bring them over because these guys, hey, they're written to Jews, 12 tribes. And if I bring them over there, where are the 12 tribes in the church? So the 12 tribes, all this 144,000, the book of Revelation, all that, that can't be the literal Jews, so it's got to be allegorized. So, so that's another thing. Allegorical interpretation of biblical text. Big feature. Okay? Continuing. And the idea of political social dominance of the church, whereby state laws would derive from Scripture and enforce Christian faith upon all citizens. When Christians awoke to sola scriptura, Principle in defining the nature and destiny of the church, amillennialism was challenged because now people are studying the prophetic text and realizing we've got literal interpretation here and it doesn't fit with amillennial eschatology. A great variety of prophetic ideas. Now, this is the downer. 
See, I've tried to give positive and negative here to be honest to what went on. The Anabaptists got in trouble right here. They challenged amillennialism, but they put forward some very ridiculous and stupid views of eschatology that got themselves in hot water. And that's why the mainline Protestants view any premillennialists or something like that as the sort of uh, latter-day kooks that are derived from these amillennial people that really got wild in Europe, thinking Christ was going to come next Tuesday morning or something. And, and, and those weird ideas had. But that doesn't mean that they weren't trying to do something right. They were just trying to get back to literal interpretation. And it's just very complicated stuff. And you don't knock it out in two days in a conference somewhere. This is, takes years of meditation and study by a group more than one person. So, continuing this, a, gr a great variety of prophetic ideas which were not well developed from the scripture arose within the Anabaptists. Eschatology is an exceedingly complicated interpretation that takes much detailed study. And it wasn't possible to do it in the post-Reformation era. It was too chaotic. It was too upsetting. People were fleeing for their lives, migrating from one place to another, getting thrown out of work, getting persecuted. Soteriology, not eschatology, key sentence, underline it. Soteriology, not eschatology, was the central combat zone of the time. What do I mean by soteriology? The doctrine of how you are saved. That was what Luther and Calvin were arguing about. How am I saved? Am I saved through the church or am I saved through belief in the Lord Jesus Christ? That was the issue. The departures from classical amillennialism, therefore, were viewed with alarm by Lutherans in the Reformed churches. Political radicalism came to be associated with such, uh, with, with such departures so that Lutherans, Reformed churches, and Roman Catholics united against the radical reformers who entertained fragmentary versions of premillennialism and other more literal approaches to the prophetic scriptures. Now, our time is running out tonight, but you'll notice the next paragraph is TULIP. T-U-L-I-P. It's an acrostic for five doctrines. Peek ahead, and that's what we're going to deal with next time, the content of the Protestant Reformation. Look on page five, and you'll see T for the total depravity of man, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, P for perseverance of the elect, and then finally, you'll see on page 7, we come to covenant theology. And the word covenant, you'll notice, reformed groups will usually have the name covenant in them. That's not an accident. That's because they believe in covenant theology. Well, what's that all about? We're going to cover that. So we're going to go on a little departure from getting into the text and the historical things for a, for a few weeks. I kind of apologize for not getting into the Bible text as such, but I think it'll benefit you because when we get back into the text and start working with the church and Pentecost and the other things, you'll have a better perspective on what's going on here. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you that you're ever patient with, with us, but we also thank you that you have provided stunning 
assets in our justification that so totally eclipses any of the little surface mundane psychological gimmicks that permeate our culture of our time, but something far, far greater to know you, to walk in confidence that you have justified us and that no man, no organization, no group, no one can take it away. We thank you that we have this independence of the heart that's independent from man, but totally dependent upon you. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, uh, if we have some time here tonight for some Q&A, if you want. Uh, yes, George. Jacob Arminius? Yeah. And was his major um, point of theology the loss of salvation, or was it something else and that was sort of ancillary to it? And how, were the Anabaptists related to him at all? Do, they, no. do the Anabaptists now have a belief that you can lose your salvation? Well, uh, lots of questions here. Yes. George has raised the issue of Anabaptists, Armenians, and others. Now, in the notes that we handed out today, um, since you raised the question, George, let's, uh, if you'll turn in the notes, because I, I talk about Armenian, Arminius in here. Um, if you look at page um, let's see, where is it? Page four, right where the tulip starts. There's Arminius for you. Arminius was not an Anabaptist. Arminius was a Calvinist. Notice, a Reformed theologian who studied under Calvin's successor, Beza. So what we're talking about here is second and third generation Reformed people. The Arminian debate came out of the Reformed group and community. And he had questions about God's sovereignty and man's free will, and he stated his opposition to some of the things Wangley was teaching and created a big stink. Uh, and so, the, again, in the classical behavior that I've mentioned, you see these big creed books, how do you suppose the Reformed theologians handled it? Called a conference and made a new creed. And it was the Synod of Dort. And it was a synod of Dort that hardened up and put in concrete Tulip. And they did it to oppose Arminius. Now, loss of salvation came, came kind of as a consequence of his position. Uh, but by that time, it's ironic that what had really gone on was that the people who were against Arminius held to the fact that you could have false faith. And if, well, let's deal with a, let's deal with a, a, a carnal Christian, or let's deal with a, quote, fallen person who was once in the Christian camp who has fallen away. Now, how would the Armenian handle that, and how would the Reformed person handle that? Well, the Armenian would handle it by saying, God was never saved, or he was saved and lost it. The Reformed people say he was never saved. So they both got an explanation for it. 
Both of them ironically share a common idea that saving faith must show a certain pattern for it to prove its existence to the person and make, therefore, assurance contingent upon behavior. Both of them. The Armenian makes his assurance contingent on behavior to make sure he's still saved. The reformed person over here makes his assurance contingent on, quote, fruit in his life to be sure he's saved or, or was one of the elect. So that's the problem. And then if, if you say, well, I'm going to go back to Calvin and Luther and I'm going to say assurance is salvation. Then how do we handle the issue that the Roman Catholics brought up and said, well, wait a minute. If you know you're saved, and you'll still get this, by the way, if you, uh, because who was it? Somebody in the last year that I knew, I can't think of where the story was. Uh, Carol, you, you remember um, one of the girls that you knew in precepts had hoped they had, had a thing where the Roman Catholic priest was going to talk about salvation, and then he made some comment about, um, I think it was Jackie's friend that was in the Catholic Church. Uh, yeah, and the, and the priest was going to give sermons on salvation, and his whole point was, you can't know that you're of the elect. I don't know that I'm of the elect. See what I'm saying? That's what he would say. Because if you don't say that, how do you keep people towing the line? Well, there's, there is an answer to this. I, I'm just throwing this out as a dilemma to get you to feel, for the, to be sympathetic to, the, to the, all these guys that are trapped in this thing in Europe in the 15th and 16th centuries. I mean, this stuff was heavy stuff going all over the place. So we can sit back, you know, on Monday morning and tell a quarterback how he should have played the game. Yeah, well, we weren't out on the field when the ball was in motion either. Very easy to sit in the stands. So Arminius had questions based on text. This guy wasn't sitting there saying, gee, I don't buy into your thing. I mean... 1 John 2, 2. Which, by the way, anybody know what 1 John 2, 2 says? Let's, let's look at that. That was one of the big verses that figured in this controversy. 1 John 2, 2. You know why most people don't understand these issues? It's because most people today don't have the discipline to sit down and read long enough between commercial breaks to to have an idea of what these people were debating about. This was pretty thick stuff that was going on here. 1 John 2.2, 2. what does it say? Now, imagine this. If Christ died only for the elect, what do we do with 1 John 2.2? 2? It says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So Arminius began to pull verses out like this and say, hey, you who guys, when we set up our creeds, we better be careful here. Now, I'm told by those who know more church history than I do, and I've studied this issue more than I have, because this is not a specialty of mine, believe me, um, that the put-down of Jacob Arminius was pretty fast and slick. Uh, in fact, it was so slick that he and his... People. I think it was he had died or something by Dort time. I've forgotten the details. But 
his position was not even allowed to be discussed in his death before they locked it up in this tulip creek. So that they were interested in quashing this one real quick. And the, the politicians were in charge, reform politicians. So not to say that they hadn't thought through their case. It was just that it was one of these cases where things got a little hurried. And we locked things up in creeds maybe before we should have. So that's all I'm saying tonight. That there was a lot of turmoil. These guys were under fire. They, they were defending themselves from God knows what tomorrow. And so they wanted a fortress. So they set up a fortress. And they called it a creed. Now, I'm not against creed, by the way. I'm just simply saying, if you construct one, think it through before you construct it. And if you haven't thought it through, don't harden up the fence in areas where you're still kind of thinking things through. That's all. So, the Arminius has come to mean loss of salvation. And the reason that is that it's been adopted by, say, John Wesley. When John Wesley tried to reform the Anglican Church in England, the Anglican Church had in its prayer book sort of a mild version of Calvin Reformed thought because where did they go when they wanted to get their doctrine? They, they sent for people from Switzerland. They came up to England, or they went down to Switzerland, one or the other, but the point was the Anglican Church in England wanted to solidify itself, so it, 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 it went into Calvinism. Well, John Wesley found a problem. Now, this is something else, guys, gals. When you look at church history, something you want to watch is that repeatedly you will notice pendulum swings and you'll notice problems. And what happened in the Protestant Reformation, and John Wesley had this problem. He said, you know, people are dead spiritually. I mean, we've got these great churches, we've got these great creeds, and nobody's leading anybody to the Lord. And the personal devotional life of people is in the pits. And, and, and it's pretty bad news. So Wesley said, I'm going to start special d disciple groups. And he had a method for doing this. They had a methodology they followed, and from which we get the word Methodist. That's where that word came from. It was the, it was the programs that he used in his disciple groups. So see where all these names come from that you can go down the street? Now, see, you can just be so smart. You can go down and give a tour of the place and tell people, well, now, see, there's a Presbyterian church. That's Calvinist. And there's a Methodist church. And I came out of John Wesley. sound erudite. You could tell them anything. They probably believe you. So point is that you, you, you want to know that there are these trends. And what you want to learn here is that the Protestant Reformed tradition was great intellectually. It was weak in evangelism. It was weak in missions. And there was always this reaction. But when these guys reacted, they went into the scriptures, poured their heart out to find out what's wrong. They weren't systematic. So guess which denomination fell first in the United States for liberalism? Methodists. And it's because they, they got into the scriptures, but they got pieces. So if you could ever get the systematics of the reform people, so you got coherence and logical coherence to what you believe, and you could get the fire and the devotion of your Methodists and some of your Armenians, you'd really have something going here. But in church history, there does seem to be this pendulum rocking back and forth, and we'll see it time and time again. Uh, well, it sounds like I'm telling you something. 
which is getting back to exactly what you're talking about in sound song, where you know faith, faith is assurance is not quite enough. So what Piper is is propagating is really this yeah. second and third generation response yes. of Calvinism to the Jesuit priests' attack of of, of original Calvinism. Yeah. Uh, there's a great quote. I don't have it here, but I refer it in the footnotes. You'll see it on the Perseverance of Faith. There's a footnote that I have there. And it's Zane Hodge's book, Absolutely Free, where he has three or four pages of bibliography. I'm not referring to Zane himself. I'm referring to his bibliography. And in that bibliography, you'll see a PhD dissertation by a guy by the name of Kendall. And Kendall went back and he, he found some juicy stuff. He's got the quotes from Luther and Calvin. And not only does he have that, but he's got the second and third generation Calvinists admitting they changed it. One of the great quotes, one of the great uh, second, uh, third or fourth generation Calvinists in our country was Dabney, who was the chaplain to Stonewall Jackson in the Civil War. Wonderful man. But he has a book called Discussions. And in it he says that the reformers had to be corrected in their understanding of faith. And he openly writes that we, in the third and fourth generation, have had to redefine this. So, again, I mean, I'm not making this up. This is just the trends that you'll see in history. So, again, this is not an attempt to be a church history course. If you're interested in that, you could start with Ron Merriman's little book, uh, get a church history book. That's not my objective. All I want to do is expose you to the fact that when you get a hold of an idea in scripture, just understand you're not the first person to get that. Ninety-nine times. If you've got an original thought, that's, that's rare. Most of the time, there have been hundreds and hundreds of other believers before you came along that have seen that, thought about it, prayed about it, and tried to live it out. And found a little, oops, we've got to kind of turn here and do this maneuver. And that's what church history is all about, is how the Holy Spirit's leading the church to finally get it in shape to be called to heaven. And, yes, Debbie. Um, I grew up and then spent most of my adult life in churches that did believe that you could walk away from the grace of God. And if Christ returned during that time, you would be lost. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and you weren't right with God. And I guess, you know, like, verses that follow the verse in John 2 seem to almost reinforce that. So can you address that? I mean, it, um, where, you know, it talks about he died for the sins of the whole world, but then verse 3 says, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. Mm -hmm. And then it goes on to say that if a man says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, that person's a liar. So if you could just... Well, let me summarize quickly. Debbie's brought up a good point. Debbie always brings up good points. <laughs> um, the, the way, the, First John and Hebrews are two hallmark epistles in the New Testament. Because how you handle one part of each one of those epistles determines how you handle all of it. For example, all the warning passages in Hebrews, you've got to handle it one way. 
you either got to make Hebrews addressed to a mixed group of believers and unbelievers, and that he, the threats and the warnings are threats over salvation, or they are threats over temporal discipline and chastening. And the same thing with John. John's epistle has got to be handled with John's gospel. And at stake with John is, First John, right from the beginning, that if we confess our sins passage, you either have to take that as the gospel, and that that confessing is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, or you've got to take it as confession of restoration after you're saved. Uh, and that carries over in the passage like you're talking about now, if he makes, he's making them a liar and so on. The question is, who are the liars, etc., etc. And how does John use gnosko there, that word no? But however you deal with 1 John, you deal with John, that John there, you talk about 1 John 2, there's a passage in 1 John 3, if we, you know, we sin not, that kind of one, that passage. There's one in John 5 about the sin unto death. And all those, so all those have to be hooked together. And they all are trees that are locked together. So you, set, you interpret this one this way, they all got to go together. So you raised a big question, but it involves the entire exegesis of Johannine literature. That's right. That's how... Well, don't get, excuse me, let me, let me conclude tonight by just saying, be careful, because I noticed you and George did the same thing. Don't think of the Anabaptists as Armenian. The Armenian controversy was something that happened apart from the Anabaptists. The Armenian issue versus uh, the Dort tulip, that's something within the Reformed churches. I can't speak for the Anabaptist movement because that became fractured into history. So you get Mennonites, Baptists, um, Amish, uh, all kinds of groups comes out of that, that Anabaptist tradition. They all have their own little thing. And I have never been a student of, that, of their historical claim. I mean, I'm very close doctrinally to them, but I don't understand all the details of their history and I never have had time to study it. So I can't speak for them. But but if nothing else tonight, I think you'll see that when you interpret the pages of the New Testament text and seek to find God's will in there, there aren't 150 different ways of taking it. There are only two or three different ways. And how you take it influences not just one passage, but the whole, the whole New Testament. And it's because of that that I'm trying to deal up front before I go any further in the New Testament between Reformed thinking in general and dispensational thinking. And we're not going to get into all the details as I can't go through John. It's just that it's no small question that you asked there. Well, I, we can't say because they weren't even dealing with that debate. They were dealing with another one. They were. They had faith as assurance. They had faith as assurance. 
Well, the trend, we can, we can extrapolate where they would have come from because the way they would come from is that they would say that the threat passages, now, they, the historical guys, might not because they never dealt with the question. But if you're going to hold that faith is assurance, you can't be sitting here basing your assurance on how many people you led to the Lord yesterday. Because if you are, you've admitted that when you became a Christian, you weren't assured. When you became a Christian, you were assured of your salvation. So, that transaction having been justified, we have peace with God. That had to happen back here, not here, not way on. So, you can't hold to that idea. So, what do you do about uh, passages that talk about warning and so forth? The way you can handle that, given that position, is that you're talking about something that they never even thought about. What was never brought up in these discussions was the hand of God temporally upon believers today. For the strange reason is that the reformers could easily see how did God discipline Israel? When Israel sinned, was she disciplined in eternity or time? Time. Go read through the threats of the Old Testament. Okay? It was all physical discipline, suffering, intense discipline unto death. Now think of Hebrews. It's written to Jews. Now what's the Jewish mind when they think of suffering and chastening? Eternity or time? Time. And it's in Hebrews that I think you have a tip on how this all falls out. Remember that passage that says, if you be without chastening, you're bastards. So here is, I think, the scriptural way of handling it. You, you, having faith as assurance doesn't, doesn't or ought not to stimulate loose living because the passages in the New Testament threaten you do that. Our father is not any less of a dad than our dads were. And he's going to swat our butts. And that's the warning. And yet, in church group after church group, you see, uh, which and we can't presume because we don't know the individual will of God for everybody. But there's depression, there's suffering, there's illness. It's not that all of it is discipline, because there's five or six other reasons for it in Scripture. But the hand of God can be on us, and we just are probably in our day, we don't even recognize the hand of God against us. Because we're so stupid when it comes to what his will is, we don't even know when we violate it. And our society is getting worse at it. Every day, the new standard goes out the window. So where your standards go out the window, you have no perception or measurement. You've thrown out the ruler. And if you've thrown out the ruler, you can't take a measurement. If you can't take a measurement, you don't know where you stand. So uh, suffering and discipline and this and that all kind of get mixed up in a big pot called suffering. Oh, I'm a victim. Well, maybe you're not a victim. There was a man here who came in this congregation one day and took communion. It was a long series of affairs that happened in his life, and he defied the Lord, I guess, and some of the people who knew him. He was, he was a Christian who was under discipline or something. And uh, within days, he died. That afternoon, he died. Now, what have we been reading in 1 Corinthians 11, communion service? What does it say? 
And see, that is the whole area. Hebrews 12, 1 Corinthians 11, this whole idea of physical discipline never been discussed in church history. You can't find a creed that deals with it. And that's what I'm saying, that you shouldn't have locked it all up back in the 15th and 16th centuries. You should have said, okay, let's put justification by faith. We know that one. Let's take sola scriptura. We know that one. And leave the rest. We didn't have to make these discussions about, oh, we're all millennialists and premillennialists are all heretics. They had no basis for saying that back in the 1600s. They didn't know how to, what the view was. So that's all I'm trying to show you, is that at that point in history, you locked things up prematurely. And now you've prevented the Holy Spirit, every time he wants to teach anybody now new truth from the Scriptures, like these whole pa- hundreds, well, not hundreds, dozens of disciplinary passages in the New Testament just go totally out the window. Nobody pays attention to them, attributes every time they would see the word saved, we think of eternal salvation. So, sotos in the New Old Testament means what? Health, physical. So, soteriological truth doesn't just deal with eternity. So there's a whole bunch of stuff in here. And uh, as I say, the only thing I want to do is just open your minds a little bit to some of these things. And we're running out of time and everybody's tired. So we'll see you next week.